raise the bar on health and live with maximum vitality. This is the Vitality Podcast with Andrea Page. Andrea is a Bali-based naturopath redefining health as living with maximum vitality. Tune in for practical life advice and start aligning with what your body wants. Our bodies are trying to talk to us. Let's listen. Tonight, we're going to be talking about yoga, asana, something that I don't too often talk about in these lectures. But one of my biases that I didn't tell you is that I'm also a yoga teacher for many, many years and more prominently now a yoga teacher trainer. And so I teach people how to teach yoga, which is perhaps one of the most fulfilling works that I do in my life. Uh, and so I study yogasana as well. And I'd like to start this lecture on how certain food and lifestyle choices can affect your yogasana practice. That's what our lecture is on. I'd like to start it by just saying that the yoga asana practice as it is today is something that's relatively quite new. We think of yoga often as this ancient science. Who's heard that? Yoga is an ancient science, 6,000 years old. Yeah, right? We've always heard that. Well, first of all, in the work that I do, five, six thousand years isn't actually that ancient because in evolutionary anthropology, I go back three and a half to four million years. So this few thousands of years is quite a short period of time. But nonetheless, the asana, as we know, like inhale, arms up, exhale, forward fold, right? Warrior one, warrior two, Ardha Chandrasana, half moon pose, whatever it is, right? This asana, most of them are actually no more than a hundred years old. Believe it or not, they came to us from Krishnamacharya, the grandfather of modern yoga, right? and he brought them down from the rishis, the great seers in the Himalayan mountains, because it was figured out that the modern human body had closed up so much, had become so congested right, and unable to move, that it needed to first be opened, and thus... The yogasanas actually only exist so that we can sit longer in meditation. The original asan, and mind you, the Sanskrit root word asan, it means seat, comfortable seated posture. Right? So it's like lotus position and swastikasana, legs to the side, a bunch of other seated positions. In fact, there are 16 of them cited in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And that's it, 16 poses. And so all of these crazy new inventions that we practice all day, every day at the yoga barn, these are actually really quite new. But that doesn't mean that they're any less meaningful because they do a fantastic job at opening up the body and preparing us to sit longer in meditation. And so just for you guys, first off, we'll start. If you're a yogi, it's pretty important to realize that your yoga practice often starts when you come up from Shavasana. You know, and you're seated there and your body feels open and calm and your nervous system has recalibrated so you're able to simply sit and be. Have you ever noticed that? You don't want to move or talk after yoga class. That's the yoga. The rest was a warm-up. So that's a really big little understanding perhaps to start. But nonetheless, we all know that yoga serves a great role today to reconnect people to not only their bodies, but their breath. And then the essence of yoga is self-expansion, expanding ourself beyond what we often limit ourselves to be. Your name, your job, right? your relationship in your family, if you're a daughter, a mother, a brother, a sister, or a friend. Because the truth is that you're so much more than that. There's an essence of self that goes beyond the lines of the outline of your skin. And so the practice of yoga is starting to associate more with that greater sense of self, right? And less with this small sense of self that's highly correlated to the mind right? and the thoughts that we think. You are not your thoughts. And so that transition is definitely facilitated by this modern practice that we have. I'm often saying in this space that there are few exercises on earth 
that are as efficient in opening, draining, toning, turning upside down, eliminating, twisting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the human body, there are a few more effective at that than modern, let's say, a well-intended vinyasa flow class. Because what do we find? In a well-intended vinyasa flow class where you're reminded often of your breath and your bandhas, these energetic locks inside of the body, do you know what those are? That's when you start to get into real yoga, when you figure out about the bandhas, the energetic locks, because that's where all movement comes from. But this movement up and down and side and around and back and forth, there is nothing that's able to drain your lymphatic system that fast and that effectively. And so when we talk about how your diet and your lifestyle is affected or affecting your yoga asana practice, perhaps the best place to start is water. And probably those of you who knew me or who have spent most of the day with me, you know and you saw this coming. Our hydration has a tremendous effect on our yoga practice. And as with anything I ever say, please don't believe me, verify me. Right? Go and take the next week, come back next week or the week after and let me know. Let me know the experiments that you did because that's when the sat, the truth, is no longer mine, but it's your truth. Does that make sense? All right? So hydration and its effect on the body. First of all, we have a cellular hydra... This is where everyone drinks water. I love it. <laughs> like, look around. You can count on five people drinking from their bottles. <laughs> I'll do it too. We have a balance of fluid in our cells, and the lymphatic system is the number one system responsible for maintaining that fluid balance. Mm-mm. Now, the thing is that today, people are walking around chronically dehydrated. Those of you who have seen me for a consult before, or you've been to these classes, how much water does the human body use and lose in a day? Yeah, there we go. Three what? Three liters. Three liters of water. That's three of these bottles. That's five of those bottles. That's six of those bottles. Not too many of you probably drink that much, and yet that's the minimum that we need simply to replace what we've lost. The kind of water that we as human beings are supposed to be drinking, or in fact as animal beings on this earth, is mineral spring water. It's water that's whole in essence. Just like whole foods, we have whole water. That's a water that the body can actually absorb and understand, and the cells can use to enrich. And so... The thing is, if we're not getting enough water, then this river running through us will be in some way or another a little bit clogged or backed up. That will result in retention of water in the cells, and I call this the desert effect. I have a lot of women, usually middle-aged women sometimes, who retain water, right? So they'll be walking around all jiggly and wiggly, yeah? And they'll be like, I can't drink water. Look at me, my body holds it like crazy. I don't drink water. And I have to explain to them, again, this desert effect. What happens is that their cells aren't receiving water, right? And they only have this much water to last them who knows how long. And so the cell holds the water in. It hoards it, right? And it says, there's no more water coming. I'm not giving this up. This is all I have, right? It's the desert effect. It's as if you're in a desert with only one half full purple bottle of water. There's no way you're giving that up. And so what I say to these women is that you have to drink a lot of water to get the message through to the cell. It's raining. (laughs) Water's coming. It's raining in the desert. And little by little, the cell will start to give up the water. And within a period of two or three days, depending upon how much salt that person's eating, you'll find that the body starts to flush itself. And there's no more water retention when someone's actually hydrated. And so that's it's pretty awesome to... Are we getting something lit on fire? Yeah. Fire emergency at the yoga barn. All right, so we're back. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so 
when we flush the body through with water, some of you might have this common thing like, well, aren't you washing out electrolytes or can't you drink too much water? Uh, and my answer is actually no. If you're drinking mineral water, your body's absorbing it in the correct way and the electrolyte balance will maintain, depending on your diet, of course. Right? How much processed food are you eating with your too much water? And then as well, in terms of too much water, the body will say no to anything that's too much. Your body has within it an inherent wisdom. Think of a great example, too much alcohol. What happens? Right? You throw up. Right? Or even some alcohol for someone who's sensitive because their body's smart. I call people who are sensitive really smart. Their body's a compass guiding them where to go on the path to health. That kind of person, maybe even one glass of alcohol and their body will say, right? your body is always talking to you. And so my encouragement is to start listening. And I act often as an interpreter of these messages that your body's always trying to send you. Okay? So, back here at hydration and how it affects our yoga practice. It's going to, if not properly used, if dehydrated, result in a kind of swelling in the body. So I gave this example earlier. If you guys have ever realized, if you've worn a ring, have you worn rings before? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And sometimes it's tight, and sometimes it's loose. Have you noticed this? This is a great indicator of your own hydration. Have you noticed that when you get off an airplane, it's really tight? Right? Or when you get off an airplane, your feet are swollen? Is it, does this ring any bells? You guys are kind of giving me blank stares. It's a two-way street. Okay, thank you. Good. I feed off of your response so that I know we're on the same page. So when that happens, the body is retaining water, specifically with the feet on an airplane. This is just about the most dehydrating environment that you could ever imagine your body be in. Right? The sealed, pressurized cabin, completely dehumidified, up real high altitude, 30,000 feet in the sky. We start to find that by all means, the body's going to get easily, easily, easily dehydrated and try to hold on to water. But then the whole ankles and feet thing is also because then, if you're on an airplane, especially if it's like a 12 to 16 hour flight and you're sitting upward most of the time, there's very little movement that's going on. And so your lymphatic system, which mind you is the only part of your circulatory system that doesn't have a pump, and why doesn't the lymphatic system have a pump? Think about it. What would pump the lymph naturally? Human movement, exactly. Our natural movement is responsible for pumping our lymphatic system. So there we are in the airplane, with very little movement, by all means, the lymph system's gonna get a little backed up yeah, and pool there in the ankles. And this is a really good measurement of uh, hydration and lymphatic fluidity. So I would give myself today, let's see, probably uh, a seven out of 10 in terms of my lymphatic drainage, right? I've been working, I've been up, usually upright since about 6.30 this morning, minus my yoga practice, which started then. And so by all means, I have a little bit of airplane syndrome. If I were to go and lay down, I'll show you guys. With my legs up the wall, and many of you have seen me do this before, this is my favorite of the yogasanas. It's called Viparita Karani, legs up the wall. Yeah. And this pose is one of the most powerful poses, bum against the wall, legs directly upward, to change everything about your physiology. All right, so we start with the circulatory system. The blood and the lymph start to drain down from the feet. Essentially, you're turning everything upside down. Can you guys see the change in my ankles? I've seen it quite a bit. They've shrunk, right? Because the lymph fluid that was pooling there starts to rewash down and back toward the lymph nodes of the groin, behind the heart, right in the throat, underneath the armpits, all over the chest. Okay. And so as this happens, we're also getting a huge reset from the nervous system itself. So you have nerve plexus at different places in your body. One of the most prominent is around your sacrum. So you have to get up from that slowly. 
I prescribe this quite often for 15 minutes twice a day to my clients. So you guys try it out, 15 minutes twice a day. And if you do this, you'll start to realize a huge change. All right, so my ankles, a little bit, yeah. A little skinnier. Anyone suffer from fat ankles? Right. You can be honest. <laughs> this is a marker of your own hydration or dehydration. This is probably the most easy marker to watch, along with the ring. All right? And so my intention in this is that you start to mark your own progress as you start to make the diet and lifestyle changes, which we'll talk about. Because when we come into our yoga practice, I often make students, when you're in downward facing dog, anyone who wanted to do asana tonight, you're welcome to get up and get into downward facing dog. Somehow the yoga mats have also made you really calm, so you want to lie down. So I don't know if we're doing yoga nidra or yoga asana. But either way, imagine if you were in downward facing dog and I asked you to lift the heel of your hands off the earth. Have you been to my yoga class before and I've asked you to do this? Yeah. So when we do this, what happens is that we're, first of all, strengthening the wrists, which is really important. It can save you about 10 years of wrist pain. But also, we're testing into the fluidity. What does fluidity mean? What is the root word in there? Fluid? <laughs> exactly. The amount of fluid that's there lubricating the muscles as well as the fascia, the connective tissue. And if there's not a lot of fluid there, then this will hurt. So you guys can do this, just seated where you are. Press down into the underside of your knuckles. It'll be as if you're trying to bend your fingers back toward the backside of your wrist, and the heel of the hand reaches high. Does that hurt for some of you? So lift up the heel of the hand if the hand's flat on the ground. Yeah, lift it off the ground. So, maybe tomorrow morning when you wake up, go ahead, drink a liter, liter and a half of water, do a few sun salutations, and then do that again. Try to hydrate yourself, and then see how that feels. And if that is an example, right, that's the smallest little example. These are tiny little joints here. And we can feel that palpable limitation in fluidity or flexibility just by hydration or dehydration. Imagine in the bigger joints of your body, like your hips, what you could do with your legs if you had hydration in the system. Yeah, so everything from our cartilage to the connective tissue, whether that's tendons or ligaments or fascia itself, right? to muscles coated in blood. They are all based upon water. And if there's not enough water in the body, then these things will be habitually tight. And so this is really the number one thing that can affect our yoga asana practice, is our level of hydration. And a lot of people think they're hydrated because they don't actually know what it means. They just know that they drink water. Well, any water that you drink with food doesn't count because the body's not really able to absorb it. Any other liquid, right? even things like coconut water or herbal tea, actually the body doesn't use them like it does fresh, pure mineral spring water. Only water is water to the body. The rest is medicine. Something the body has to process and decipher and take apart. Does that make sense? So water drunk on an empty stomach, this three liters of water a day, I encourage always most of it in the morning, a liter or a liter and a half before you ever think about the word breakfast. And by doing this, we're starting to wake up and flush. Fantastic way to detoxify as well to take away all of the things that the body cleaned up overnight and wash them out. I always say that people wake up and they shower. They wash their outside. How about your inside? What if you shower your inside? Okay. Mm. So I think you get what I'm trying to talk about a little bit when we're talking about things like flexibility. People who are really stiff, literally are really stiff because things have hardened. You can think of dirt or concrete. When it's wet, it's softer. When it's dry, it's hard. This is simple physics. Nothing will change in your body. Your body's the exact same. Does that make sense? And so fascia, which is becoming more and more and more popular today with yin yoga and its increasing popularity, we start to learn 
That fascia is very malleable, but fascia is mostly water. It's the cellular matrix of water suspended, holding muscles in place, dividing one thing from another, lubricating surfaces so they can slide back and forth on each other. Well, if we dry that up, then it's going to become like a dry, hard netting versus a soft, malleable, lubed-up netting. It's so basic. I could give you a million other analogies, but I'll stop there. I want to spend some time talking about what also not only gives water to us, but takes water away from us. So those as well will have a tremendous effect on our yogasana practice. And the two specific ones that I want to talk about tonight were written on the board, so you know they're coming. They were advertised. And the first one, of course, is salt. And so this is not only salt itself, and I know that when we talk about salt, there are a variety of different salts. There's NACL, something made in the laboratory. Right? There's sea salt, something that's been, uh, with the water evaporated from it, collected from the oceans. There's Himalayan mountain salt. Right? There's salt that you can get from salt flats on lakes, etc., etc., etc. It goes on, different kinds of salt. But essentially, all of them are the byproduct of what happens when the water's left right? and the salt remains. When you put salt, for example, on a laboratory slide, if you're looking under a microscope and you have a living cell, you put some salt in there, everything on the cell dehydrates and dies. Water is the basis of life. Your human body is made of 60 to 90% water. And so salt is something which takes water away. Now, some of you might think, but I thought salt was good or it's really important for minerals. I'm not saying anything's good or bad. I choose not to do that. Of course, we have naturally occurring salts, for example, again, in mineral water, spring water, in things like parsley or coriander leaf, cilantro, even tomatoes, celery, Cucumber, high and naturally occurring salts. Most leafy green vegetables, because they're so high in minerals, also have a natural salt component to them. But when we have the white powdered stuff, unfortunately, that's just like any other white powdered stuff. Be it white sugar, white flour, or cocaine. (laughs) It's all white powdered stuff. You see that? It's a bit of a processed food in a way. And so for salt, I much more prefer the whole food variety. Because when anything is that concentrated, and salt is a concentrated product, right? because the salt that you get from the ocean is very different than the salt water that you would get from the ocean. Do you see how one's more dispersed and one's much more concentrated? And then you put that on your food in heaping (laughs) spoons, right? Have you ever seen the people who restaurant meal is served and they don't even taste it and they first just put salt on it right those people not us those people isn't that crazy you don't even taste it and it's just a habit that people have gotten in today because it enhances the flavor or so we think this is another one of these drugs if you were here for my lecture last week who was here i talked about a cool a lot of you i talked about the top 10 things that the world would that are normal in the world that we would be much better off without I would probably add salt. If I could make that list 15, after I left, I thought of a few more. (laughs) I'll do the next five another week. But in general, salt is definitely one of those things, and it's so super normal, and we don't think twice about it. And yet, it dehydrates us so, so deeply much. In fact, to such an extent that we have a kriya in yoga, a cleansing technique, where you actually drink a ton of salt water. And what's the reaction from the body? Anyone ever done it? Yeah, and if you don't vomit, then whoosh, it rushes right through you and you immediately get out of it. Anything like that, that's a message from the body. That's a poison to the body that the body is trying to eject in whatever way it can. Does that make sense? It's clear, right? The lab slide example, it's clear. And so definitely when we look at her hydration, it's not only about how much water we're taking in, It's about what's taking water from us. And anything that's too salty, overly cooked, dried, or fried, anything that's processed, right? And definitely, any kind of animal products which are inherently salty by nature, 
These are going to have a tremendous effect on the levels of hydration, the lymphatic system, and the fluid coating in your muscles and connective tissues, and will have a huge limitation in your yogasana practice. All right. And I want to say, I just, uh, I didn't say this at the beginning, but a lot of this intention for this lecture is actually because this is something that I've been doing pretty regularly organized and controlled experimentation on, on my own body over the past three and a half months. Yeah. I've been practicing Ashtanga yoga. Has anyone practiced Ashtanga yoga before? Yeah, traditional classical Ashtanga yoga. I was a newbie to it and it's blown my world. Finally, for like five, I don't know, five or so years, I've been waiting for that next thing to really deepen my understanding, and, and this has just been tremendous. So I don't recommend it for everyone. I recommend it for healthy people with working bodies. Right? That's really important. But I can practice next to someone who I know doesn't care as much as I do about their diet and lifestyle, and I see them struggling through the poses. I see them struggling from one thing to another, and... <gasps> and even their breath and whatnot. And I just, I mean, I almost want to write a note to the Ashtanga community, <laughs> right, to awaken people that their diet has a tremendous effect on their practice because almost no yoga practice is as serious about the asana as Ashtanga yoga. And yet, what we do every day with our fork has a tremendous effect on how the asana will turn out or not. Yeah, that's pretty significant. All right? So... In saying more about that, uh, we can move away from salt, I think, right? And I'll mention just really, really, really briefly, briefly a part of the yogic diet. Uh, any of you trained yoga teachers in here? You've been through a yoga teacher training? Ah, uh, cool. Very good. A few of you, as expected. We find that in yoga teacher training and in any in-depth study of yoga, we start to learn more about the philosophies of Ayurveda. And Ayurveda is Indian classical medicine. And in Indian classical medicine, we understand the world through principles, kind of like in science. In science, we have certain uh, states of matter. We have gas, air, and solid, right? Or gas, liquid, and solid. Pardon, air is gas. Gas, liquid, solid. So those are different states of matter. Well, similarly, in Ayurveda, we have a philosophy of the gunas. And the gunas are materialization of things. In its material form... It can have one of three principles. They are rajas, tamas, and sattva. All right? So I'll act them out for you. Rajas is the active, the fiery agent. All right? It's the one that goes, whoo! All right? Tamas is the heavy, the dense. And then sattva is the peaceful, balanced one. That's the one everyone wants, right? Well, the advice on yoga and diet from Ayurveda says that we should eat mostly, if not only, sattvic foods. So what are sattvic foods? Any guesses? What are the peaceful, happy foods? Give me some examples. Huh? Fruits and vegetables. Very good. She hit the nail on the head. She hit the sattva on the <laughs> lotus. <laughs> right? Yes. Fruits and vegetables are the sattvic foods. In fact, the Vedas... The books of yoga say that the freshest yogic or the purest yogic food is freshly fallen fruit. The purest yogic food is freshly fallen fruit. I believe that's from the Rig Veda, if you want to look it up. <laughs> and so we find, oh my goodness, that there's dietary advice for yoga? Oh my God, I thought it was all about warrior two and tight pants. And so we start to figure out, okay... Well, fruits and vegetables, those already we talked about, those have perfectly balanced amounts of salt, right? They're not concentrated. They're whole foods. They have the water inside of you, of them, so they're going to be hydrating, giving back to you rather than taking away from you. Does that make sense? And so now that we know the sattvic category and we know the advice for yogic diet, that's no different than advice that you've probably gotten at some point in your life, right? Eat more fruits and vegetables. That's the only dietary advice that I liberally give in this space. Let's look for a minute at the other two categories. All right? So the tamas, the dull, dense, heavy, passive, sluggish energy. What kind of foods do you think those would be? Yeah. Yeah. Fried foods. Fried foods, definitely. Someone said meat. Yeah. Dead flesh, which is how yoga sees it. 
right? Something with no longer life force. It's been killed so that you could eat it, right? And then it's been cooked, so any kind of living protein structures are dead by the fire. That would have that kind of dull, dense, heavy effect in the stomach. And those of you who have heard my food combining lecture, if you haven't heard it, I'll give you a card and you can go on my podcast series, liveforvitality.com forward slash podcast, and you can listen to episode one, food combining. We start to learn that animal products take the longest to pass through the human stomach in digestion. So that means that you're going to be waiting more time to be dull, dense, and heavy. Does that make sense? All right, so we have cooked, fried, oily foods. We have animal products. What other kind of foods would you think would be tamasic? Yeah, okay, so maybe processed foods in general. I'll take that. Yeah, like a processed food, a packaged cake, something like that, something that's very rich. So a packaged cake is a perfect example of a place where you would have way more calories in one little bite than you would ever find in the natural world, in the sattvic world. I'd have to eat 10 mangoes to have as many calories as that one packaged Twinkie cake. You see that? So those are very dense, dull, heavy foods, for sure. They're tamasic. And so what effect is that going to have on you in your yoga practice? Come on, guys. You know this. You're going to be moving around like this. Right? All sluggish, dense, and heavy. You won't have the lightness that our bandhas give us. Right? These yogic locks, the muscular locks in the body. If we're eating that kind of food, it's that simple. And you know this because you know when you've eaten a big, heavy, hearty meal, right, comfort food, things like that, afterwards, you feel like, right, that's the perfect sound effect for tamas. (laughs) All right, I won't do that again. So we have our last category here, which was rajas. Do you remember what kind of force that was? The active one, the fiery one, right? The one that's charging forward. And in our 21st century world, we tend to think positively about that. It's like the whole A-type personality or the corporate kind of mentality where it's all about competition and getting ahead, right? But actually, that's also out of balance. And I'm guilty of this sometimes myself. As you can see, I'm very pitta by dosha. I'm very fiery anyway. So I have to remind myself and meditate and sit quietly a lot to keep that balance, because life is about balance, and health is balance, simultaneous. So we find then that rajas, this third category, is the one that uh, that consists of foods that would have that kind of effect on you. Does anyone have any idea what kind of foods those would be? All right, so okay, all right, you got them. So stimulants, caffeine, for sure. All right, even black tea, white tea, things like that. Definitely your Red Bull. Any kinds of drugs, yeah. What else? Yeah, there we go, over there, the yoga teachers. Spicy foods, chili peppers. <gasps> right, they're hot, they're going to increase heat, they're going to increase activity. For sure, those are rajasic, all right? And then the last two that maybe you guys wouldn't guess so much are things like garlic and onions. These are things that actually are not part of a yogic diet because, mind you, the yogic diet is intended for meditation. It's intended for peace. And garlic and onions, which are medicinal foods, have any of you ever eaten them raw and chewed them? Pretty spicy, huh? So we're back there with that spice. They're activating on the body. They create heat inside of the body. Does that make sense? And so, whereas these are, again, amazing medicinal, medicinals, they're not actually necessarily foods. And yet, we overly rely on them for flavor in our food. And so, that's just an interesting concept. And I'm not saying anything's right or wrong, or I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just letting you know what the Vedas and what traditional Ayurvedic philosophy and the yogic diet recommends and encourage you, perhaps, to do your own experiments. I'll tell you from a medical standpoint that you know that these are medical plants because when you take them in, immediately, you smell yourself. You know, you smell of garlic and onions because the body is trying to detoxify them, to purge, to release them 
as soon as possible. And so they're literally dripping out the pores. That's a message from the body that it's not something that it wants to hold inside. Does that make sense? Okay, so in general, this last category, rajas, what kind of effect do you think this is going to have on your yoga practice? Okay, impatience, cool. What else? Unfocused, awesome. Have you ever seen anyone practice like this? Ready? Even though I did all the poses perfectly, come on, I did them perfectly. The intention behind it wasn't at all sacred. It was much more gradasic. But you start to see that that lightness that the sattva brings has an effect on the yoga postures and how you move between the yoga postures. And so, by all means, these kinds of food categories and this understanding of food has a tremendous effect energetically by the Ayurvedic equivalent of physics on our body. And so, the more fruits and vegetables the sattvic foods that you eat, and the less of everything else, the more easily you'll start to discover and uncover your yogic practice. The less you'll be clogged by dehydration. And then the last clogging essence that I didn't talk about yet, and this will be the last thing I say, is oil. And this is a heartbreaker. It's always hard for people to hear my opinion on oil. But mind you, oil is the most heavily dealt processed food in the world today. Oil is the most advertised processed food, advertised as a health food. And some of you might be thinking or scratching your head saying, what about the good fats? Right? Because of course there's processed vegetable oils, which none of us want. And mind you, you're probably eating when you eat out at restaurants, so be mindful and ask the restaurant what oil they cook with. That's one of the most empowering things that you could ever do for your own diet. That's a side note, and I've promised to give a lecture on vegetable oils. That will be forthcoming in one of the coming months. But any kind of oil, what is it on a macronutrient basis? You know about the macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate? What is oil? There we go. That was the answer. That's right. Yes. Fat. So a whole food, like a mango, this is my favorite example always, that whole food has within it protein, carbohydrate, and fat. So this is why a mango has protein, also fat, and it's mostly carbohydrate, right? Simple sugars, that's what our brain runs on. Whoosh. Spinach or leafy greens as well have protein. But when we look at something that's not a whole food, like oil, it doesn't have protein or carbohydrate. It's 100% fat. And so how do you make oil? Give me an example of any kind of oil. Shout it out. Olive oil. How do you make olive oil? You press it. You take the olive, which is what botanically? A fruit. Very good, right? It's a droop, a stone fruit, a fruit with a pit in the center. We find that the olive then is pressed. So in like Italy, this is what they would do. They would press it, press it, press it, take away all of the vegetable fibrous matter and leave you with this juicy, fatty substance, which is often then actually refined. And and when you have true fresh-pressed olive juice, it's a lot more like green juice and a lot less like oil. But the olive oil that we know has been almost further dehydrated. And you're left with just fat. And so, like any processed food, when that comes into the body, the body says, huh? 
What do you want me to do with this? I only understand whole foods. And so that olive oil comes in, right? or that whatever kind of oil it is, sunflower oil, even coconut oil, comes in the human body, and it's 100% fat. Now, have any of you ever cooked with oil? Or you've had oil and you've served on plates? What do you have to do with the plates and the pots afterward? Yeah, you have to scrub them. This was her motion. <laughs> you have to scrub them because there's a thick layer coating of oil on the outside. What makes you think that that thick layer oil coating isn't happening inside of your body? And it's not limited to the digestive tract. In fact, oil actually clogs the bloodstream to a great extent. And we know this on a more mundane level when we talk about cholesterol right, or triglycerides, fat in the blood. And we look at people with high cholesterol, you know they have clogged arteries. Right? That's why they have to go in for a triple bypass, because they've eaten too much fat, quite often fried food. Food cooked in oil. Oil, 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 oil. <laughs> Thank you for one laugh at that. <laughs> you guys are sleeping tonight. <laughs> All right? So this literally not only clogs the sink or your dishes, but it clogs your bloodstream. It's going to have a very tamasic effect, making your yoga practice heavy and clogged. And it's amazing. I can't even tell you the controlled experiments that I've done over the past three and a half months, right? From being in India, practicing in India, and eating certain foods, small amounts, that are high in salt and having the effect on the human body, right? To going through weeks where I only eat fruits and vegetables and nothing else. Kind of like a cleansing diet and feeling the effect and the influence it has on my yoga practice. Not only my yoga practice, but this is a per I, it's rare that I get real personal. I was in a motorbike accident in mid-February in India. Uh, don't worry, I'm fine, don't worry. I had hugged Amma and I left my body. It was great. So I wasn't on the motorbike when I was driving. And so I was thrown off the bike and my knee, which had had an injury about six months before that, same knee, always happens that way, right? It's a lesson in humility. It hit the earth. It held all the impact on the earth. And so I've had a knee injury as I've been doing these experiments. And the days, right, are the weeks when I have no salt and no oil, and I'm only eating the sattvic foods, and I'm making sure to hydrate tremendously, my knee can go into lotus no problem. The weeks or the days when there's salt, there's oil, there's other kinds of fatty or clogging foods, there's tamasic foods, there's even rajasic foods, my knee hurts. There's inflammation. There's problems. And so, of course, there's no lotus happening on the left side. And it's really, really, really that simple. And it's tremendous. And so, again, I mean, I, I'm giving this lecture, hopefully, as inspiration to you. I say, again, that nothing I say is true for you guys because it's my own verifications. It's my own experiments. And the biggest gift that I can give you are the parameters for you to create your own, so that you can find your own truth. So please, again, don't believe me. Verify me. You're all yogis. We're here at the yoga barn. So try it out. Make sure when you do a controlled experiment that you do it for a certain period of time. So I would say in this case, it would have to be a minimum one week. And you have to be quite strict about it. Someone, a scientist collecting data in a laboratory won't allow just one thing to slip, oh, it was just that one piece of cake, or yeah, whatever, there might have been salt in that, no worries, it's not going to swing my data too much. Of course it is. Of course it is. You have to be very clear and clean about the experiments you make, and that's when you find true results. All right? So come back to me in two weeks. I won't be here next week. Next week, Michael is going to give the lecture. He's our senior therapist here at the Yoga Barn. He's fantastic. I'm really excited about him stepping into the forefront and giving the lecture, so make sure not to miss that next Monday. But two weeks from now, come back and let me know how it was. If you want to fast, you can come join me for the three-day cleanse program starting next Tuesday again. You can let me know then at length how your experiment was. But we have a few minutes now for questions if anyone has anything lingering. Yeah. As what? Yeah, for sure. Garlic is a fantastic medicine. 
There's almost nothing that is as effective on the antiviral, antibacterial, right, antifungal level than garlic. It is one of the most powerful medicines known to man, right? Allicin, which is part of the allium family, it's the active chemical compound in garlic, has a tremendous effect on the body. And thus, it's meant to be respected as a medicine, not as a food, right? Because when we cook it, just like that aloe vera, remember? When we cook it, the medicinal properties are questionable. And so anything that's lost its medicinal properties and has been in some way transmuted or processed, it's seen as a poison, really, to the body. Processed food. Cool. Someone over here, yes. Yeah, your omegas, awesome. So lots of different nuts and seeds. I don't recommend so much the consumption of nuts and seeds. I recommend them in very small amounts, soaked and sprouted, which makes a tremendous difference. So go ahead and go do your research of, of where they get the source of that oil, um, as well as a full range of leafy greens and fruits and vegetables. When you're talking about omegas specifically, you're going to look at things like fatty fruits, like avocado, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that, that would be re really easy to find a nutrition book. But when you start eating intuitively, you'll say, yeah, you know what? Some macadamia nuts that I'm picking from the tree right now, they sound good right now. And maybe it'll be a month or two before I'm in the south of Italy and I can pick some almonds from the almond tree and open them fresh where they're still hydrated and eat those. Maybe I'll have 10 of them. It's not something that we need on that kind of daily basis, right? Nutritional science, which is a whole nother lecture I give, I give a whole lecture about how nutritional science is useless. Um, it's something that's misled us to a great degree. Good question. All right, one more. Yes, my love. How do you get foggy water? <laughs> Where? <laughs> For example, here. In Bali? Yeah, so um, it's, it's much easier other places in the world than here. And the reason for that is because we're on a rice field island. We're essentially on swamp paddy, this island. And all throughout the 70s, we were uh, hit hard by the products of the Green Revolution. Sounds really good in name, but actually wasn't. It was a petrochemical agricultural revolution led by the West, particularly by the United States and international government organizations, where a tremendous amount of toxic chemicals, DDT, of course, I'm sure you've heard of being one of them, were brought over here to spray on the crops, <laughs> right, on your food. How does that make sense, right? And so all of that was seeped down into the earth and into the water table. So Bali is actually what's called uh, an organic society in transition. It takes 10 years of absolutely no polluting toxins like petrochemicals and fertilizers and things like that um, to have been completely absent for you to truly say it's organic. And we're not at that 10 years yet, so we're still a society in transition. And so because of that, the spring water in Bali, like I have Balinese spring water, there are springs everywhere, that's easy. I have it delivered to my house, but it's been filtered. Even that has been filtered to try to filter out these harmful chemicals. And so normally your question of how do we get quality water is I would say find a spring wherever you live. There's a great website by a man named Daniel Vitalis. It's findaspring.com. I give it to as many people as I can. You can go home and look it up. Click your country. See if there's a spring nearby. There likely is. Drive out into the countryside once or twice a week. Take with you big barrels, right, or big, I don't know, 20 liters jugs and fill up four or five of them. Drive back. And that's a beautiful excuse to escape the city once or twice a week or month, once or twice a month. Right? And so that's normal. That's everywhere else. Here in Bali, we do have a bit more of a rough time because of the organic in transition society. Um, there's water from Mount Bator that I'm interested in starting to test um, to see because it's in a mountain area. And so, of course, it's, it was away from all of the petrochemicals. Um, yeah. So that's that's my answer for now. And that, that water that I mentioned from Bator, they have it at Bali Buddha. Um, it's in a purple purple writing on a white jug. I think it's called Balian Water. You guys can check that out. If anyone's interested, write me on my Facebook page and I can post the phone number and the information of the company. Um, yeah, because otherwise, unfortunately, the most commonly sold waters in Indonesia, things like Aqua and Cleo, these big bottle brands, which even we have here, that water is so heavily filtered because of the 
toxic thing that I talked about, through the process of reverse osmosis, that even the minerals are taken out. And so when minerals are taken out of the water, water becomes a processed food. And it, it's like incomplete rain in the desert. The body can't really absorb it. It just simply passes through as wetness rather than as something that the cells can use. Uh, and so to combat that, uh, we use certain mineral drops that we import from the States. And so you can talk to me about those if you're interested, but um, that's not a forever scenario. That's only kind of in the meantime or when you're traveling. It's that kind of solution. So... That's my answer for that. You guys have been beautiful. Please, this is one of the most exciting lectures because I've given you tons of homework. So please, do your homework with excitement and curiosity. Do your experiments cleanly and do report back. This conversation does not have to ever finish. That's why we come back every every week of the year. I have a Facebook page for just this. Uh, it's facebook.com forward slash cleanse with Andrea. And I answer all messages on here personally, so it's actually the only way to contact me personally. So you can come up and take a picture of this. I also have a bunch of cards that I'll pass out, and um, on these cards there is a link to not only my website where the podcast is, and that's why I'm recording tonight. I try to give as much as I can away for free, yeah, so that you got one. It's past month, so that um, I don't have to see everyone one on one, even though I love seeing you on one one on one. So take one and pass it on. Um, and join on Facebook because that is the that is the portal for continuing education. You guys are absolutely beautiful. Remember, you don't have to change anything at all. You just have to become more aware and start making those experiments. All right, so I have a mailing list up here if anyone wants to add. Um, I'll be sending out a newsletter soon, and I always send out like free recorded yoga classes and things like that. Come and write your name and leave any message or request for future lectures, and I'll see you next week. Peace out. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Incredible people. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Remember, you don't have to change anything right away. Simply become more consciously aware. Tune in next time for more interpretations of our body signals. And don't forget to reprioritize your life around your health to live with maximum vitality. <laughs>